Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. The episode today is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Sabil Rahman, a professor at Cornell Law School who recently served in the Biden administration in the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, sometimes referred to as OIRA, as senior counselor and then later as the acting administrator. Before that, he was the president of the think tank Demos, and he's also the author of the book Democracy Against Domination, amongst other works. Hi, Sabil. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So in your book, Democracy Against Domination, you describe kind of two broad visions about how to do policymaking that we've had in the U.S., maybe thinking back to the, the New Deal as, as, a, as a watermark anyway of a, of a moment that we might look to as the origin of this. And so on the one hand, there's kind of a laissez-faire, what we might say libertarian these days, approach to um, governing or not governing the marketplace, the economy. And then there's a managerial technocratic approach that um, has antecedents, but we really see coming into f- full flourishing during the New Deal and post-New Deal per- periods. And you argue in the book, or at least that's the way I read it, that both of these approaches, there's something non-democratic or at least distrustful about democratic politics in both of these approaches. It really limits the ability of people to affect policy outcomes. Um, and neither, again, this is kind of my reading, um, and, and I'd be very interested in your, your take, is uh, they don't address a key challenge of our particular time, which is economic and political inequality. And so you argue, again, just kind of paraphrasing, uh, for an anti-domination understanding of democratic institutions, and you have reforms um, uh, that you offer for the regulatory process, among other things. So I'd love to talk um, about all of this in more detail, but just to further situate Um, where the book was. It was published in 2016. If I look at the publication date correctly, it was in November 2016. So it was a momentous uh, uh, period of time in American politics. And it was also one where the regulatory state was in the news, right? There was Donald Trump during his campaign talking about draining the swamp and all of the deep state rhetoric that he was deploying that struck a chord with a lot of voters. So I'm curious how, as the book came out and as the administrative state was in the news, how you saw your arguments um, contrasted with the, you know, the kind of al- this alternative vision that was being offered by the Trump campaign at the time. Yeah, well, so first, Mike, thanks so much for uh, for starting us there. You know, it's been really interesting to sort of think back on uh, on the book, you know, in light of the Trump era and everything that's that's come since. Uh, so, so kind of going back to that original moment, a, li- a lot of what really got me going uh, in that book project was really the financial crisis that mm-hmm. started in, in 2008. And um, and in particular, sort of uh, this concern that I had watching the response to the financial crisis play out, that on the one hand here, you had such a, such a, a great, sort of very clear example of uh, uh, corporate and financial power, right? That um, you know the uh, the deregulation of financial markets, the the huge economic uh, influence and power that these mega firms had, you know, really bringing the entire financial and the larger economy down to its knees, right? Um, and it really got me thinking about uh, this question of economic power on the one hand, and then on the other hand, how sort of very uh, technocratic, you know. Um, uh, engine, like, like, let's just engineer financial markets a little bit better. You know how that mentality just seemed to not be, uh, not be meeting the moment that that it seemed, you know, it was called for at that time, right? Between, you know, Occupy Wall Street and the larger sort of longer tail of, uh, of of the financial crisis. You know, it really seemed like a moment tailor made for for just a, a top to bottom rethinking of our political economy. And we got some of that in terms of. Uh, you know, public debate and grassroots social movements, but uh, comparatively less of that in terms of public policy. So I say all that because um, that's what really got me to try to do this work of trying to unpack, you know, well, where where are those constraints coming from? And they're really like intellectual, uh, paradigmatic constraints that uh, the, the sort of, we're used to thinking about big government versus markets as like our left-right you know, mm-hmm. formulation. You know, the right cares about markets. The left cares about big government that will, you know, solve public problems. And and you know, I'm a believer, big believer in 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 democratic government. But what I w- what I uh, was troubled by is the way in which a certain kind of sort of wonky technocratic managerialist approach to government 
you know, among among progressives or liberals, uh, really suffered from two problems. One, it often would take as a given a lot of the underlying inequities and disparities of economic power in the in the market economy, and so sort of reduced to a nibbling around the edges kind of uh, orientation. Uh, and two, um, really sort of almost shared with the the, the laissez-faire view, the libertarian view, a, a distrust of democratic politics, that at the end of the day, we don't really think we the people ought to govern on these complex matters, that really it should be done by people who know what they're doing. You know, we, we look to the Fed rather than to, you know, the Congress or to, you know, folks on the street to decide what should happen. Um, and so, so that was some of the, the motivation uh, for the project. Um, you know, now, like fast forwarding, I think um, what's interesting in 2023 is, you know, two things. One is that a very narrow managerial technocratic approach to economic policy, I think, leaves a huge gaping moral void in which, among other things, the kind of appeals that you saw from Trump you know, can can flourish, right? Because it's offering a critique both of uh, a seemingly distant, unaccountable state, and in its own way, a critique of uh, of an existing political economy. Um, that's that's one problem. And then the other problem is that it also, uh, you know, that again, managerialist approach to to policy design just didn't have enough resources, intellectual or moral to imagine a much more transformative, different way of doing, of structuring our economy, right? And I think um, the pandemic created another moment to rethink, you know, both the, the substance and the form of economic policymaking. And, and I think you've seen a very different uh, political and policy response, you know, since 2020, uh, this time around. Hmm. Yeah, it's super. It's super interesting, and there's you know there's a lot to. Um, and maybe we can kind of return to this the, this question of the moral void and yep. and Do- and Donald Trump kind of stepping into that. So really interesting, um, and then maybe offering potentially competing visions, a, a, some kind of competing vision, um, as seemingly incoherent as that was. But but maybe you know just to kind of just get further um, pieces of the argument on the table, we could. Um, dive into this notion of inequality, economic inequality, political um, inequality, a little bit more. So there's a there's a quote in the book that that I like that I wanted to see um, just maybe have you expand on a little bit. So here's how it goes: the fundamental problem of the modern economy is best understood not as a matter of income inequality or distributive justice, but rather as a broader problem of power and domination. Okay, so that's the quote. So then the question is, you know, just to unpack that a little bit, what is the distinction you're drawing here between on the one hand, inequality or distributive justice, and on the other hand, power and domination? How are these related to each other, but how are they distinct? And, and what is the distinction you're trying to draw? Yeah, totally. I mean, so so uh, they're, they're related, but it, but they're two very different uh, lenses, I think, on, on diagnosing the economic problem. So, you know, I think... Uh, Distributive inequality, we have an intuitive sense of what that is. There's uh, some folks who just have a lot more than other other people. You know, in Bernie Sanders' formulation, the top 1% uh, versus the 99%. Um, and that's certainly true. But, but what I was hoping to capture by a, a, a focus on power and domination is that it's not just the literal, like, dollars in a bank account. What we really ought to be concerned about is who gets to govern? Who gets to decide? And so the problem of, say, the financial crisis wasn't just that you had these mega firms that were worth so much money and whose whose collapse then, like, immiserated huge swaths of the country in a recession that, you know, workers and communities had to bear the brunt of the costs. You know, that so that's a problem of just, you know, income and inequality and distributive shares, sure. But there's another deeper problem, which is that, in a sense, we are all... Um, you know, uh, we're all sort of subjects to the arbitrary whims and desires of these masters of the universe whose decisions are not accountable to to us and whose decisions affect all of us. And so that, to my mind, was the bigger problem of, you know, shadow banking or of, you know, take any um, uh, take some of the debates now about uh, corporate concentration and, and antitrust, for example, which is another area that I talk a little bit about in the book, but has really flourished as a newer area of policy attention of late, that in some ways what we really ought to be worried about is uh, the sense that uh, the firms and individuals and groups that are sit at the commanding heights of our economy, they're essentially making decisions, uh, governing decisions about, you know, 
who wins and who loses, which products make it to market, which regions will live or will thrive or 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 die, you know, based on where investment goes. They're making these decisions that are really uh, uh, political decisions that ought to be in a democratic society responsive to, in some form, a larger democratic politics. And so that's what a shift in power gets us, is it gets us an attention to who's actually governing and how, uh, which downstream then can affect distribution, but you could easily, you know, redistribute income without redistributing power, and that that that's a that's a bad outcome, I think, for a democracy if we were to have it. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting. Just the last thing that you said was is it's a really interesting thought. So so just to kind of continue to play with that. So I think just to offer the uh, you know maybe the the counterclaim or maybe the argument that you're arguing against or you know again just trying to situate the the arguments in the book. So you know I think a classic libertarian laissez-faire type would say something like. Yeah, it's bad. When these big firms, um, they they accumulate all this power and then they go to government with their hands out. <laughs> and the government uses its coercive sure. power to um, uh, to extract wealth from folks who don't have political power and deliver it to these well-organized interest groups. So of course their solution is uh, to shrink government, right? Shrink it way down so that it, it can't be captured functionally by these, um, by these powerful actors. Um, and then, you know, of course, uh, just to again, off, maybe offer the, the the slightly more liberal version of that would say, nope, we can't do that <laughs> because there's too much that we need government for. There's externalities. The marketplace just operating on its own is going to um, lead to all kinds of inefficiencies, market failures, and also a horrendous distribution of wealth that's going to lead to like lots, uh, just a small number of very wealthy people having all of the having all of the the wealth in society, and that's that's not good. And so the program would be something like. Okay, we're going to have government, and then what we're going to do, um, what government's going to do, is it's going to correct for these inefficiencies. It's going to do the redistribution of wealth um, that is, you know, called for in order to maximize well-being, and then we're going to insulate the government from these political um, forces, from the large economic actors, um, and then the market will, you know, once once we have a distribution of wealth that makes sense, then the markets are going to uh, discipline the uh, the big economic actors, and then the government's going to solve for these inefficiencies and do redistribution, and it's going to be insulated from um, these economic actors. So that's like the nice, uh, you might think sure. of it as a kind of the standard story at some level. So what's the, what do you see as the, as the flaws? What are the, what are the weak points there? Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's so interesting because in a way, right, um, both of those standard models uh, even though they often are not presented as theories of power and accountability, they are implicitly partial theories of power and accountability. So the the free market idea, you know, in its in its strongest form, I think, is an attempt to rein in the potential concentration of economic and political power by resorting to market mechanism. In a competitive market, no one right. firm dominates, uh, and in a limited government, you don't have that kind of like. Uh, uh, unaccountable rule by political elites that, that you alluded to. That's a, that's an account of power that actually has quite a bit to, to uh, you know, um, quite a bit of compellingness to it. But um, but what it misses is, is, you know, what the what the standard liberal argument uh, highlights is that market mechanisms are themselves systems that uh, encode structural inequities and disparities um, and actually allow for other kinds of power to flourish. Other kinds of unaccountable power, I should say, to flourish. Flip that around for the standard, you know, liberal big government story. That's a response to certain forms of market power and uh, uh, inequities in a market system. So that's why you want government to do things like, you know, provide public goods and so forth. Um, but it, it, it in its in its thinner, like just trust us because we are government experts version. It's uh, that argument for government, I think, is 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 normatively brittle uh, because it doesn't have the kind of moral resources to respond to the, the the very real concern and challenge of like, well, what happens when government gets it wrong? What happens when we don't really think the experts are expert or the experts actually know what's best for all of us, which is a very real concern. And so this all sets up what for, for me, the, the focus of the book then ends up being is to can we imagine uh, systems of democracy that are built to respond to both of these forms of unaccountable power. 
right? We want it, We want democracy as a way to protect against economic domination, the domination of you know uh, dominant firms, the domination of uh, employers. Uh, it, over employees in the workplace, uh, the domination of the market system that, you know, uh, structurally encodes class, race, and gender uh, inequities on the one hand, and also a form of democracy that responds or protects against uh, political domination, the control of government by unaccountable uh, political elites of one form or another. And so, th- and, and so, so that then becomes, becomes the, the crux of uh, of the book. I should say one more thing, this is all, this is all sort of super abstract. Um, part of what I really, uh, loved in that project was sort of discovering along the way uh, some really interesting historical figures who are grappling with this exact tension. And so I spent some time in the book talking about uh, uh, thinkers and, and reformers and activists like Louis Brandeis and uh, like John Dewey and sort of grounding some of this in, you know, moments, uh, previous moments of reform, not not quite the New Deal, but certainly in the pre-New Deal period around labor, financial regulation, uh uh, the first wave of antitrust uh, regulation um, as as really having this explicit democratic, small d democratic uh, valence to it that often gets lost in the traditional government versus market story. Right. Yeah. And that's definitely, yeah, it's a very interesting part of the project is to kind of recover, um, you know, some of these ways of thinking about, about government, about markets that, um, you know, not perhaps altogether lost, but maybe lived more in history departments and, uh, um, you know, the occasional kind of labor scholar um, and weren't so much an active part of the, of the discourse, uh, at least in the legal academy. Um, And so, yeah, so that's, that's super interesting. Well, of course, there's been a whole movement around um, you and and other folks, Lena Khan, um, now, um, you know, uh, at a very high level at government, uh, making similar arguments, Jed Purdy, who we had on the podcast not that long ago. Um, so yeah, so that's all super interesting. So, so, um, okay. So the, if we think of this, um, dynamic here, we've got uh, market failure on the one hand, and there's different ways of describing market failure, of course, right? So on the, the, uh, from a kind of straightforward economic perspective, they're going to talk about things like externalities, um, and they might talk about things like the diminishing marginal utility of consumption and concerns that, you know, the marketplace is going to just generate um, too much, concentrate too much wealth in a, in a way that's actually quite inefficient um, from the perspective of human well-being. But that's a very different way of thinking than the way you're, you're often talking about the failures in the marketplace, where you're looking at, um, you're concerned with, or you seem to be concerned with domination. Like we don't like certain types of relationships that maybe even a an ideally functioning market, quote unquote, around ideal, but um, you know, what, let's call the the economist idealized version of the marketplace might generate, and that's a whole interesting subset that we could probably dig into. But in any, but in any case, however you think one thinks about market failure, we've got that problem. We've got a problem of political failure on the other side, um, which again, different people might diagnose slightly differently. But broadly speaking, we're going to have. Uh, a shared understanding that it's like the government not delivering <laughs> um, on its promise of right. you know of of making well you know maximizing well-being for the for the public however that we understand that and then your um, alternative or your your solution here is um, as a democratic is is democratic reforms and actually I really want to get into those and here I think we can go back to Donald Trump because he often also offered an alternative. <laughs> um, to this dynamic where he um, wasn't a laissez-faire guy, really. Sometimes, I mean, he wasn't, he's not altogether coherent, obviously, but sometimes he would talk in that way. But he also was happy to talk about the government supporting coal to bring back jobs in West Virginia. Or, you know, he intervened in, tra- he was happy to say, no, we shouldn't have um, free trade with China. You know, we should be, the government should be intervening here. And so he was pretty interventionist, but it was very much like I, the president, I'm going to intervene on behalf of, a, you know, favored political constituencies, basically. And it was pretty clear about that. And you offer something that's very different is this notion of, of democratic, um, you know, of kind of a, a democratic alternative. So maybe you could descri- describe just kind of in broad strokes what that democratic alternative looks like. And then, of course, I'm going to try to complicate it and, and, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, of course. and you know, let's get into the difficulties. But, but, uh, but yeah, but let's start with uh, what, what is the vision? Yeah, totally. No, and and there there are many many difficulties and challenges to be sure. It's not an easy thing to uh, to do as a, as a society. But um, you know, it, 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 a couple of things I'd say about this. I mean, one is so. First, it's really important as we even as sort of we uh, 
juxtapose some of the the Trumpist appeals. You alluded to this, uh, Mike, but um, you know, the Trumpist appeal has a particular view of who the demos is, in addition to like making some of these gestures towards you know breaking with free trade or orthodoxy and 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 sort of breaking with the the republic the standard republican uh, approach to uh, committing to to cut social security right there's some mm-hmm. some really important breaks from conventional laissez-faire libertarian you know neoliberal what have you um uh, uh, economic orthodoxy which i actually think did have play a big role in 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 his crossover support in mm-hmm. in 2016 a lot of people coded donald trump as being more moderate that he really was because of those um, economic positions he had, even though he didn't govern that way at all. But it's really important that his his account of of democracy is, uh, I think, both um, uh, uh, plebiscitarian. A you know, to your point, sort of like I, the president, say so. It's plebiscitarian, you know, bordering on autocratic and and increasingly more autocratic as he went, you know, up to January sixth. Uh, but it was, and it was also. Um, uh, First implicitly, but then increasingly explicitly, uh, a white nationalist view of who the demos is. Right, mm-hmm. the demos is is white people and uh, and sort of and people who are, who have made their uh, their peace with with white supremacy in the country. I think what so contrast that then with what what I think we ought to want, which is a a, a sort of uh, full embrace of the moral equality of of all persons in our in our polity, and so that means. A multiracial, multi-ethnic, feminist democracy. Um, then uh, and B. Then thinking about um, a, polit- a political regime that isn't just about who wins an election and isn't just about who shows up at a town hall, but creating structures that allow for meaningful agents, collective agency over our uh, our shared conditions of uh, of political, economic, and social life. And so in the book, I try to uh, frame this around an idea of contestatory democracies or drawing from uh, a bunch of different traditions in political theory. Uh, and then and the idea there being sort of democracy is going to require continual sort of uh, uh, experimentation, uh, uh, debate, disagreement, productive disagreement, uh, because we have a diverse polity and we're not necessarily going to always agree and we want to be able to revise your collective judgments over time, um, and that that requires uh, institutional structure. So I, I'm also critical in the book about sort of uh, thin notions of democracy, the, like uh, the town hall, you know, notice and comment, uh, uh, me- mechanisms that you know are perfectly fine as a piece of a larger whole. But if you think that you know that is equivalent to real meaningful agency. Uh, Particularly for those who you know are, are the most vulnerable or impacted, then then that's a problem. And so uh, the the later parts of the book is an attempt to try to think through, you know, what constraints do hard constraints might we need to prevent concentrations of economic and political power? Uh, what affirmative channels uh, or vehicles might we need for productive participation that can handle complexity of the kind that you have in, say, financial regulation, uh, but that also is you know rooted meaningfully in community. Yeah, it's, I mean, okay, great. So this is, I mean, it's very attractive vision, right? Especially when compared to the um, to the alternative. Um, and, you know, and I, I tend to agree that the administrative state and its current um, manifestations are, um, you know, it, it faces legitimacy problems and kind of always had. Um, it's interesting to contrast your vision with... Um, with an earlier uh, podcast guest, Jed Stiglitz, now your um, colleague at, at Cornell, yeah, yeah. Um, because you 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 know you're, you're both thinking in deep ways about um, about these these questions of legitimacy in the administrative state, um, but coming to I think some pretty different uh, different conclusions. But that's good in a productive way. Um, so maybe the you know one of the um, again kind of paradigms that, that I think you offer in the book when thinking about reforms. So I should say. You know, there's, a, again, a kind of a standard move um, when we talk about um, democratizing the administrative state. And we should, yeah, it's probably worth going through this, is to say, um, you know, uh, yeah, absolutely. We've got big democratic problems in the administrative state. There's a huge de- uh, uh, democratic deficit. And what we need is a more robust non-delegation doctrine. Um, we should celebrate decisions like West Virginia v. EPA and the major questions doctrine um, that takes power out of the hands of um, these unaccountable 
um, you know, pointy-headed bureaucrats and puts it back in the hand of Congress, the true democratic um, institution in our society. And um, and there you go. Uh, that's that's kind of the argument. And then, you know, there's a standard response kind of along these democratic lines, which you address in the book, which is the presidential supervision response, um, uh, Justice Kagan's argument that uh, no administrative agencies are democratically, they have good sound democratic pedigree um, due to presidential supervision. Um, and those, again, are pretty standard moves in the literature. And you don't go with either one of those. I don't I don't take you as a proponent of the non-delegation doctrine. Right. Um, and, um, and, but I don't think you're fully on board or, or feel that the, that the Kaganite um, presidential supervision argument is is sufficient. So, um, so yeah. So, what what of Congress? What of agencies? Um, if we're trying to think about democratizing um, political decision making, yeah, totally. This is this is great, and and um, you know, it's funny for for me to sort of re- revisit this part of the book. Um, now, after having spent some time, you know, in uh, in in the 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 deep part of the regulatory apparatus. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, but no, I, I I think that's right. So I'm absolutely you know not a, not a fan of the of the non delegation doctrine or its modern version of the major questions doctrine, which we can talk about if you like. Um, you know, in part because I actually see that as um, an arrogation of anti democratic power onto the court, mm-hmm. away from both the Congress and the executive branch. Uh, so you know, it masquerade, but it sort of goes to the the broader point where we started the discussion that I think some of the the Insofar as there's like a normative moral appeal that that some of those arguments hold, it's because it's sort of tapping into some of these anxieties about the uh, our, our limited democratic, small d democratic uh, role and control as you know citizens of the polity, and it's sort of trading on that to then. Uh, but by sleight of hand to then accomplish a further concentration of political power away from from the public and in favor of, you know, those corporations and uh, uh, already powerful interests who who benefit from a gutting of those specific regulations, right? The major questions doctrine uh, was not invoked, for example, to uh, rein in the Trump administration's attacks on communities of color and and uh, uh, and, and immigrants, right? right. Um, so, and that's notable. Um so yeah, I think not definitely not for non-delegation. I think on presidential administration, it's uh, that's a that's a, a, an interesting wrinkle. So um, in the book, I had a I, I tried to um, uh, formulate this this account of regulatory agencies as sites of democratic participation, and by that, what I meant is it's not just that we elect the president and then the president makes policy. That's part of it, but if you actually think about what it means to meaningfully engage as individuals and as communities in collective governance, collective decision-making, you actually need more than just like, like sanctioning someone to rule in your in your stead, right? You, you want to be able to sort of get into the weeds a little bit. You want to be able to convey like what are the particular needs of you know, your particular constituency or your particular region? How might that cash out in context of you know, a particular set of uh, proposals around, you know, housing policy, say, or or um, uh, or environmental policy, and so this idea of agencies who who marry some forms, or or or, or who in an ideal form could mar- potentially marry some forms of um, uh, grassroots engagement and participation and input with technical expertise of the kinds you need, was really interesting to me. That like. Um, you need institutional spaces and structures to exercise collective judgment. This is one of the big lessons, I think, from, for example, the, the vast deliberative democracy literature. It's not just, you know, people sit around and, and think deep thoughts when you have deliberative democracy. It's that you actually need to construct institutional spaces that enable and empower and 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 uh, uh, sort of enlighten people into the ability to, to uh, exercise collective judgment. And so the idea of a regulatory agency that isn't just doing whatever the president says, but is also engaged in the more in greater specificity on policy issues than what, say, the legislature might be able to do, you know, at a higher level, you know, uh, ex ante, seemed like an, an important um, missing piece in our institutional ecology for democracy. And so that's a very different read of a re- of the regulatory agency's potential. It's not regulatory agency as bastion of 
ex, ex, uh, of technocratic expertise, but rather regulatory agency as a place where con, a range of constituencies and needs and values and and uh, uh, and goals can all kind of be hashed out. You know, kind of like a legislature, but under a different logic. Yeah, and one of the things I do enjoy about this take, of course, is that um, again, amongst the uh, arguments that you're resuscitating, this is you know along the lines that Dick Stewart argues in his very famous, yep. I think, 1971 paper, uh, the Reformation of American Administrative Law. Um, so uh, of, of 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 agencies as sites of pluralistic bargaining. Um, so I guess I have two questions. So I'm, again, I'm super interested in all of this. It's a, yep. I think it's a fascinating line of argument um, and, and good to keep it on the table. So the, the two things I think, um, uh, well, and this is especially in light of your recent time in the, in the Biden administration. So one concern or question that I always have, even though I'm attracted to some, many of these ideas, is like when you look at real regulations, I'm like, how the heck is anybody going to participate in this stuff? They're yeah. so complicated. They're so, there's so much technical detail. So as you note in the book, and I, it was, I think very broadly accepted these days, you know, there are value judgments, absolutely unquestionable value judgments that are embedded in many, many, many agency decisions from climate change to housing, to education, to immigration, to, I mean, literally any issue that you might decide to pluck out of a hat, um, an agency is dealing with it and it's, there's likely to be value-laden decisions that the agency are doing, are making. On the other hand, in order to even understand what the stakes of the value judgments are requires often enormous technical expertise. Um, and, 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 and they're often in the, you know, the, um, at a level of detail and granularity that most people don't have a, a sense about. Like, I want clean air. And that's a very reasonable thing for someone to want. Does that mean 65 parts per million of, of particulate matter? Does that right. mean 35 parts per million of particulate matter? Um, and like even, and like literally, how does one translate that value judgment, I want clean air, which is really all you can expect a regular person walking around the street to have into, you know, and uh, something that would get actually operationalized in a regulatory decision. So that's, um, so I'm curious what your reflections are on that, um, that, what I, th I find personally to be a pretty substantial difficulty. Yeah, that, that's great, and 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 it and it is a challenge. Um, I, I think uh, you know, so. So one way to 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 think about that challenge is actually to to take a few steps upstream from the like the parts per million you know point of the of the of the discussion and sort of think well okay um, that's not the only part of you know, a broader, you know, Clean Air Act regulation that's being formulated, as you're saying, which I agree with, there's a whole range of value judgments that that have to be made. Um, so one way we might think about, like, part of the regulatory design is, is it creating the right hooks and levers that enable impacted, affected interests, you know, so on the philosophical principle that democracy is about enfranchising all affected interests and, and different interests are affected differently in different in different ways. Um, does the regulatory apparatus create hooks and levers for affected interests to first have a seat at the table to begin with? And there are different ways you can institutionalize that that don't require sort of superhuman levels of um, you know, outside reading and study by laypersons to to then weigh in on the parts per million question. And so, um, you know, in the book I talk about some of these, but there, but the literature has has really grown quite a bit since since the book came out. You know, uh, there are models of interest representation in the regulatory state. So, um, you know, for example, uh, I talk about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and how it has embedded in it offices whose job is actually to like do proactive outreach to particular constituencies, you know, veterans, uh, uh, student debt holders, and so forth, um, to sort of understand what the needs and challenges are and help sort of channel those or represent those in like within the the the, the sort of administrative apparatus. Um, and you can imagine dialing that up. There's a proposal on the Hill uh, uh, that's been kicking around for a while. Um, I think I think it's in a Senator Warren bill and a Representative Jayapal bill. Uh, that includes a proposal for an office of a public advocate to be created to serve as a similar function. Um, so you could so one piece is like helping channel a wider range of needs and voices and interests into the regulatory process with some some help and support. Um, another another piece is um, how we enable uh, more democratic monitoring of uh, monitoring and responding to outcomes. So. 
Um, I talk a little bit in the book about the Community Reinvestment Act and its heyday uh, allowed grassroots groups to um, uh, kind of uh, register their uh, register with federal financial regulators whether banks in their area were in fact lending to uh, those uh, communities of color per the regulations. And where they weren't, that would weigh against uh, those banks when they went up for seeking approval for a new merger, for example. And so these are mechanisms which I find interesting because they are ways of bringing communities into the decision-making process in a way that doesn't require everybody to, like, be a top-to-bottom expert in all the ins and outs of, like, the technical policy design, but still very much gives them a a meaningful, uh, catalytic role in shaping and driving the direction of the policy. So that's all, like, one set of stuff. I think there's another set of stuff which I I didn't talk about in the book as much, but I think there's been a lot of really interesting experimentation on over the last, you know, since the the book came came out, on models like citizen assemblies and citizen juries, you know, where you sort of create a decision-making process that includes, you know, briefings from experts for a lay for, for a, a, a lay jury of sorts that that then puts the, the technical expertise in its appropriate role as an input into an ultimately normative balancing of values judgment as opposed to, like, the other way around, right? Um, and, and some of those experiments have, uh, in other parts of the world, have, have actually involved, like, fairly high stakes and fairly complex matters. And it's an interesting question, sort of, could we start to adopt some more of those types of practices um, in our own regulatory practice going forward. Yeah, it's super, super interesting. And again, um, just there's lots of different ways we could go with this. I'll, I'll just note, um, uh, there was another podcast guest, guest we had on, uh, Alex Guerrero, recently, um, who talks about litocracy, which is uh-huh. um, not yep. that far off of the citizen jury idea. Um, yep. One critique that folks sometimes raise against litocracy that um, I would be curious if it resonates with you, and I, there's a lot on the table, so I don't want to get too sidetracked on the litocracy thing, but one concern I think folks have is that um, there's a participatory element of um, what we mean by democracy. So it's not enough to have a body that is in some sense a representative sample of the right. population um, making decisions. It's we actually want the f- regular person walking down the street to have some element of power in a participatory way. So, um, so I'm curious if that critique resonates with you. And then if so, uh, how does that play into this problem of, you know, we still, <laughs> there's, this, there's this hard thing where a lot of the decisions are highly technical um, you know, Oscar Wilde famously said the problem with socialism is that it takes up too many evenings, right? We don't want, you know, everyone to have to become experts in the Clean Air Act and did it, you know, everything else, um, but we want them to exercise power. So, um, so in any case, yeah, just that question about right. participation and autocracy, and then how does that then, you know, c- complicate this issue of of um, of engaging regular folks? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm also sort of fascinated by by the the autocracy or sortition types of um, uh, ideas that are kicking around. Um, I, I think one response to that is, is it ultimately, I, I think of democracy as a deeply associational and collective enterprise, not a highly individualistic one, right? And so, um, you know, it, it's one, if your model of, you know, humans is they're sort of like out there as as a collection of isolated individuals and we scoop up a couple of them and then we like get a result, right? You know, sure. But if you actually think about like flesh and blood humans and, and, and the kinds of like the ways we, um, uh, the ways we formulate our values and formulate our ideas and make decisions in the world, it's, it's almost always socially embedded, right? We have some community, some, some familial or communal or collective, uh, formal or informal place where, where we we develop our values, we sharpen them, we learn we and where we we develop our learning and we do it as a collective enterprise. And I may not be, you know, the deep expert in, you know, X, Y, or Z, but as a as a group, we might have enough sort of collective resources and expertise to um, you know, uh, address the the issue in ways that are that are enough for for what, what my particular needs might be. It's how unions function, it's how uh, tenant advocacy uh, groups function, for example. Um, so the book doesn't talk as much about the associational um, side of things, but there's a, a way in which it, it you know sort of the the, the missing complement to the parts that are in the book is actually 
a parallel story about why you need civil society association and organization to to uh, create the muscle, the capacity, and and just the space for for people to be able to exercise collective self government. Yeah, great. And maybe we could talk about your time at Demos in in a, in a second because uh, you know obviously yeah. you were part of this effort to create these types of institutions. But I wanted to just a thought struck me, and I was curious. Um, uh, just along these lines, I'd be curious your take on it. So we were just talking about the Clean Air Act. So national ambient air quality standards um, are set by EPA under the Clean Air Act, according to a you know a, a kind of pretty specific statutory standard, protection of public health with an adequate margin of safety. There's a lot of technical details that go into figuring out the parts per million, right? Um, so that's one kind of decision that's embedded in the in the Clean Air Act, pro, uh, centerpiece of the Clean Air Act, um, these NACs. So you, but then you set the standards, and then there's a decision um, that are delegated to the states, right? So states come up with state implementation. You all know all this, but just to, just to refresh our, uh, for our listeners, um, the uh, state implementation plans are developed by the states, and that's how states... De- determine how they're going to comply with these standards. And um, there's lots of different tools they can use. There's going to be lots of different distribution of the cost of compliance. Um, and there's going to be distribution about the benefits as well um, in terms of the timeline, who gets their clean air first and that kind of thing. Um, so in a way, you could almost say there's something like the vision that you're offering here, which is to um, place uh, you know, a technical decision within a technical body. And of course, we could talk about the imperfect imperfections of that. But then there's this allocation of a different set of decisions. Um, and I don't know if that, uh, you know, what the thinking was in Congress at the time. Um, you know, there was a variety of different reasons that Congress p- possibly, you know, decided that the states were the appropriate bodies for that. But one kind of argument would be, well, it's more democratic. We're going to place these kind of distributional and compliance decisions um, at the state level where there's going to be a robust democratic conversation. Um, uh, to develop these state implementation plans. And so the, so I guess the two questions are, one, um, uh, uh, do you think that that uh, is attractive as a, as a way of thinking about engaging people in regulatory decision-making um, is using the states? And then if we don't like the states, you know, and we were going to revise the Clean Air Act along lines that you think would... Um, uh, you know, would comport with your vision and put aside the setting of the standards, just focus on the compliance element of it. Um, what would be better than the states, like than state governments, which are set up, they're political bodies, there is, uh, you know, elections and democratic accountability and, and all of that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, I've, I've been fascinated by the the sort of uh, what the localism question, right? Like mm-hmm. what is the right, when we if we think about, uh, decentralization as part as one one flavor or one component of democracy. How do we think about you know cities, states, counties, etc.? Um, uh, so I mean, there's some kinds of decisions that I think makes a lot of sense to to really flow through a um, geographically rooted decision making apparatus. Uh, where I think the challenge comes with the states is that it's not. It's not obvious to me that either states or, in some cases, nor cities mm-hmm. are actually sort of the right um, uh, boundaries of the relevant sort of geographic community of interest, right? So if you think about, like, uh, if you look at those uh, maps of media markets, for example, right, where it sort of, like, maps out, like, um, the scope of a particular media market, like, what's, I, I always find those maps interesting because it's it's a, it's one sociological slice into, like, What's the sort of what is the greater New York area? It's not literally New York City. Mm-hmm. It's also, but it's also not New York State. But there is like a a a, a, a an area that like has some sh- enough of a shared lived experience that there's a real there there, right? Um, so so all of which is to say, I think uh, sort of place based collective decision making is I think really important and interesting. It it may or may not line up with our formal boundaries of states or cities or counties. Um, And in fact, like one of the ways in which uh, political authority has often been gerrymandered is by sort of fiddling around with Mm -hmm. uh, the the boundaries of the local, right? Um, You know, there's a a Dan Farman has written some some great historical work, uh, for example, about how um, uh, Southern redemption after the Civil War in part uh, was operationalized through a rewriting of, of local jurisdictional boundaries to to um, as a way to, to reassert sort of uh, the planter class's control um, mm-hmm. over freed persons. And so um, 
so I, I think this decentralization question is, is really important and interesting, uh, but we should sort of be open to and thoughtful about what is the right way to constitute the the local region or where, where decisions are made. Right. I mean, we tend to default to the states, but they, you know, there are lots of lots of problems with with states as, as political bodies. Oh, totally. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, not not to uh, I'm not, you know, not to get into um, constitutional text interpretation uh, uh, rabbit holes. But like I was kind of wondered as a tongue in cheek uh, thought experiment. Well, you know, the Constitution talks about states and the importance of states and so forth. But if we understood state boundaries functionally rather than formally, you know, what if by state we just simply mean a collection of people in a in a geographic community of interest that is, you know, what what was the population of a given state at the mm-hmm. time of the founding? It was nowhere near the size of even a, a, a current house district, right? So, um, so like, you know, it's not obvious that this, that a, a uh, our fixation on the 50 states really is supposed to mean the 50 states. Right. It's an interesting originalist uh, uh, take on, on the, right, the, the, the idea of a state. Um, so, so maybe um, uh, we could talk a little bit about your, your time in the Biden administration, right? Because you, you're not just a theorist, you're, you put this stuff into, into practice. And so, you know, so now that we've got a lot of ideas on the table about, you know, um, uh, uh, integrating democratic practice into regulatory decision making, you know, problems of don- as a way of addressing, you know, some of the um, democratic um, failures or democratic critiques of agency decision making, and um, you know the role of domination, um, both political and economic domination. W- w- you know what kinds of um, you know realistic opportunities for the kinds of democratic participation did you kind of specifically see to the extent that you're you know there's, there's things that you can talk about. Um, so you know what were the what were the promises that you saw you know once you got your hands on the actual you know, um, uh, mechanisms of power. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate the the question a lot. So, so for folks, you know, for folks tuning in, I, I served for two years um, uh, in the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs, which is sort of the the regulatory hub office for the White House, uh, first as senior counselor, and then um, as the acting administrator uh, before a Senate confirmed administrator, uh, who who is fantastic, uh, and also a law professor um, himself uh, 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 took over. Um, it was an incredible experience and and a really fascinating time to to be there. Uh, you know, of course, when you're when you're serving, you're like your 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 the role morality of of the position is to you know serve uh, the the president's priorities and to serve you know the statutory directives and so on. Um, so that said, I mean, some of the things I was most excited about to see uh, as real opportunities and real areas of interest were along some of these lines. So, for example, going uh, thinking about the problems of economic domination, uh, the president issued fairly early on in the administration uh, an executive order on competition, and on day one of the administration issued an executive order on equity. And when you stack those two together, in a sense, what 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 those two did were to point to two very different kinds of structural systemic inequity in our in our political economy. You know. One that was uh, in terms of uh, marginalized, exploited, excluded con- communities. One which is in terms of the concentration of economic control and power uh, among dominant firms in particular markets. You know, uh, airfare, transit, uh, uh, broadband, etc. And and those executive orders had directives for the agencies to figure out you know a, a more holistic, big picture way of tackling those 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 challenges. Um, that meant a lot of individual regulations that then came forth. Uh, the competition EO listed, you know, some sixty or seventy individual regs that you know started making their way through the OIR review process, and we worked with the agencies to help help them sort of uh, develop and 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 sharpen those regs as as they came up. Um, the equity EO also then led to a bunch of regulatory actions. So so one big bucket was I think it was really interesting and exciting to see um, agencies thinking about their uh, their existing authorities and directives from Congress uh, with an eye towards these broader systemic inequities. Uh, it was also, I should also say that in a, in a lot of cases, um, that was a truer return to form to the original statutes that the, the agencies were operating under. In competition, um, a lot of those regulations were, are really revivals of old progressive era statutes that have been on the books for a long time, but have not been sort of uh, uh, front and center the way they are now. Uh, 
So that's like one big bucket of like on the substance of like tackling concentrations of power. I thought it was really interesting. Um, a second big bucket was on sort of like more the machinery of government. So this goes to some of our conversation about, you know, how should agencies be structured and how should they run? Um, you know, if you look at things like uh, the customer experience executive order, uh, the in the equity executive order, there were um, there are particular provisions around improving participation in the regulatory process. Um, so there are there are a number of uh, uh, the open government, uh, the national open government plan. I should mention, uh, which comes out every two years. Uh, the Biden administration's first one came out in December twenty two. Um, you know, took a lot of sort of old good governance ideas of like transparency and so forth, but really focused it much more on participation, equity, uh, you know, kind of robust uh, 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 on-ramps for, for communities to have their voices heard. So if you, when you look at all of these things, um, I thought that you, you, get, you, get a pic, you get an overall picture of some really interesting experimentation. Um, you know, the agencies that, that administer um, major social programs, for example, benefits programs uh, under the, the equity EO and the customer experience EO. One of the thing, big initiatives that is now underway is an attempt to rethink the uh, forms and enrollment pr processes with an eye towards making sure as many people who are eligible can actually get on access to government benefits. So a, sort of a user-oriented des design approach to those services which among other things involves like a, a lot of participatory dialogue, you know, f uh, workshopping and focus grouping and sort of uh, co-designing with representatives from the, the communities who are trying to access, say, disability benefits, you know, uh, to design a better system around it. It's really interesting approach, right? Kind of participatory, you know, in some ways, um, but it's like a new muscle that, that, uh, mm -hmm. that is being created. So all of that I thought was super exciting. I think um, the last thing I'll, I'll say about this sort of at a high level is it also um, it also gave me a, a really deep appreciation for uh, the importance and 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 skill of the of the civil service and the ways in which like if we're serious about tackling structural inequality and if we're serious about democratic participation, you really need to resource that vision. So it takes person power and and uh, 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 and its own form of expertise to know how to design a good participatory community engagement, right? Not every agency has, you know, enough slots and people who can be sort of on the ground organizers to uh, to do that well. Uh, but that's a thing we could do if we really wanted to, right? We, I think we can, the agencies have done great with, um, on a shoestring, but if we really resource this vision, uh, you know, from the Congress, then I think you could actually see um, even more stuff happen. Yeah, it's really interesting. And and the role of the civil service, I think, is sometimes, we, you know, um, as outsiders, are, we underappreciate just the, the scale totally. and the, right, the time and the expertise that the civil servants have. So, you know, a lot of times I think there's a contrast just on this um, that's, that's offered between civil servants and democracy. We want to take power away from civil servants um, and deliver right. it to, you know, in some ways that's the, that's the contrast that would often be given is the, uh, in, in the way that you described the managerial technocratic view is one where the civil servants are the central decision makers. And then the, a democratic one is where the people are the real decision makers. So, um, so do you buy into that contrast? If not, how would you like to, to complicate it in your, in your way of thinking about these, these issues? Yeah, it's such a good question, Mike, cause, um, cause I do think it's something that, uh, gets overlooked and, and then that can create, um, blind spots that are then dangerous. So so I actually really believe that a well-resourced, protected civil service is essential to democratic governance. Um, and by that, what I mean is, you know, you need a professional civil service that whose mission is to serve the public, but who, who doesn't turn over every time the White House changes hands. And whose loyalty is to the public writ large and not to the particular president that appointed them. Um, that's really important. And uh, I think it's telling that, you know, in the same way that the non-delegation doctrine sort of masquerades as a democratic uh, uh, intervention, but really operates to arrogate more power 
onto the few. Um, I think you actually see some really troubling, um, a really troubling new consensus on the right uh, with around the idea of blowing up the civil service. Um, you know, the, the Trumpists are all about this. Uh, for people who followed it towards the end of his administration, uh, Trump uh, uh, started a project on what's called Schedule F, which re- which would have reclassified many, many, many civil servants to be uh, directly fireable by the president. Uh, if you look at some of the more weedsy administrative law opinions that Roberts has authored of late, it seems to offer some constitutional foundations for um, the notion that the president ought to be able to hire and fire at will uh, civil servants, you know, even those who are sort of deeper down in the ranks and not just sort of the the, the, the principal officers, right? Um, and I think that's super dangerous because what that, what that enables is um, the sort of like uh, uh, Banana Republic style, like uh, loyalist, uh, partisan loyalist uh, approach to governance. It's the spoil system that actually the independent civil service was supposed to get us away from. Um, so that's like the negative thing we want to prevent. Um, in terms of an affirmative vision of of uh, democratic regulation, democratic administration, you know, if you th- if you think about all the stuff we just talked about, you know, the expertise we need around setting the parts per million level, uh, but also the the capacity and expertise we need around um, pulling together the citizens' assembly or the right kinds of uh, consultative and participatory um, uh, 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 spaces that that empower meaningfully the people who really like need a seat at the table. That takes staff, right? It takes staff to do that, and you need people who are doing that day in and day out, and who are really like waking up every day thinking about how do I do this better. And to my mind, that is what a civil service at its highest form is really about. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting touch. And you're absolutely right that this has become, um, you know, a real point of, um, of attack for um, for folks who, yeah, are, are skeptical of the administrative state. So so maybe we could just spend the last few minutes talking about um, this this question of associational, right? Because, I mean, in, in a way, this, this helps square the circle to a certain extent that we have, um, you know, very complex governance apparatus that, you know, is is that we just cannot expect regular folks walking around to um, to understand even a small part of it. I mean, I don't understand even a small part of it. It's like my whole career, right? Um, right. And so, um, so that's we, we, that, that's not going to work. On the other hand, you know, we we want to have robust something that we can call democratic, and I think that's an interesting question. Um, and and you mentioned the associate associationals of possibility. So, um, so so maybe just a few questions about this. So one. Uh, you know, version of this could be something like corporatist where, you know, EPA, when it does a rulemaking, pulls together environmental groups and business associations and, you know, the few other kind of NGOs, interest group, trade organizations and the like that could even have real power in the regulatory process. There's negotiated regulation um, and that whole kind of world. Um, One criticism of this, of course, is that the associations don't have democratic pedigree, that the environmentalists are just funded by wealthy foundations and that the consumer groups don't really represent consumer groups. They, you know, they just kind of have an ideological ax to grind. One might not like that version of, you know, that critique of consumer groups, but then, um, you know, you can make the same critique of industry uh, trade associations that they're just like kind of ideological and they don't really, um, you know, the, the Farm Bureau doesn't really represent the interest of many farmers. Um, so yeah, so how do you how do you manage this? You know, what, what what would the associational vision look like? Are there is this a governmental process? Or are we kind of counting on quote unquote civil society to do this? Um, how do you how do you think this all could could potentially work? Yeah, these are these are great questions and, and, and tensions. I mean, you know, on, on some level, like democracy is a it's a fractal challenge, right? It's not we, we don't solve it in one arena. We have to sort of think about democracy in in multiple nested. Uh, 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 spaces. And so I think, you know, we were talking about the design of the regulatory process. We want that to be democratic, but then we also, you know, have real questions about, you know, what the, the interest group ecology looks like. Um, so I, I think those are fair, fair critiques. I mean, I think as a, as a general matter, like what we ought to want is I think a, a, a robust, thick civil society, um, ecology where, Communities are able to organize, and through that organization, able to then um, you know have have the ability to to you know, participate and shape the political uh, process. Um, 
there are going to be some organizations that are more rooted, you know, in community than others. Um, there's a problem of astroturf uh, groups and, and and all of that. Um, so those are just like uh, endemic challenges. But I think as like as a nor- as a as a matter of like what our north star is, I think we want for a democracy to thrive. I think we want lots of grassroots, uh, independent, membership based organizations that can empower those communities. Now, in a non-ideal world, we bootstrap our way to that. You know, we have some membership organizations, labor and 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 sort of other sort of grassroots membership uh, groups of which there are many, um, and lots of great organizing work has been has been done over the last you know decade plus to um, to create the kind of uh, uh, ecology we have today. You know, for example, just to take one example out of many. Um, I don't think we get the sort of policy attention on. Uh, the child care and elder care crisis. That is one of the big sort of uh, domestic policy debates now was not front of mind even three years ago in in domestic policy. And I think we owe that a lot to the grassroots organizing of care workers and, uh, you know, predominantly women of color care workers through formations like the the National Domestic Workers Alliance and, and many, many others that put that issue on the table. Like, to my mind, that's democracy. You have a a membership-based grassroots civil society organization that, in coalition with others, was able to sort of build enough independent political power that it could set the agenda for the Democratic Party in a really important way and thereby, you know, help address the issues of a huge swath of our of our country that, you know, what folks are struggling with. Um, so all we just say, you need organization, you need civil society uh, uh organizations, I think it is really hard from the regulator standpoint to sort of figure out, well, who do I need to have mm-hmm. at the table for the table to be balanced and inclusive? Because like, what if I miss somebody? What if I, what if I'm listening to a group I think is a real membership group, but actually is an AstroTurf group? Like those are really tough questions. Um, and that's why I think uh, th- that's part of the reason why I come back to this point about sort of uh, staffing, resourcing and, and sort of uh, almost like expertise in democracy, so to speak, right? Like when I think about um, some of the amazing organizers who I've met over the last few years of my career, like they are very much experts, right? They are very much experts in their communities and how to organize their communities, how to um, how to um, uh, effectively sort of coalesce disparate voices into a shared vision. Um, so you need that expertise actually to make uh, a consultative, inclusive, participatory process, actually genuine and meaningful in some form. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Okay, I'm going to just have to ask one more question, and then I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> um, I appreciate your your indulgence. So, because um, so I think you have in some ways a really interesting vision of democracy that is maybe in contrast to some pretty common ways of thinking about this stuff. So, and you talk about this a little bit in the book. You're critical of the deliberative democracy. Um, view, right, that sees, um, you know, that we're going to all get together and be reasonable. And, a, and you, the quote from the book, a, gent, a genteel consensus amongst participants will emerge, right? Um, and, okay, so, so you're, 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 you're um, skeptical of that. There's another view, which is the aggregative view, right? Which is that people vote, we aggregate people's preferences, right? And so you have this, you know, really an older fashion vision in many ways, this associational view that we're part of groups and, and so on. Um, but, you know, ultimately, and you actually say in the book, you know, that, that what you, your vision, um, as you describe it, is a route towards the gradual emergence of considered judgments and common understandings through debate and experiment. And to be honest, that sounds a little bit like a genteel consensus. Yeah, um, yeah. There is a, and, and, you know, even what you were kind of just describing, it's, it sounds very nice, but, you know, power is part of the story, right? Like totally. sometimes it's just about a majority or whoever can capture the organs of power having their say, and people are going to very much disagree with, with whatever outcome you're going to arrive at. So, so in any case, I, you know, and, and, and especially when we're structuring like a Democrat, like a process, right? Who do we bring to the table? Is it balanced? There's always going to be this element of, well, who you bring to the table is going to really affect the outcome. And there's a lot of power in that decision about who you bring yeah. to the table and, and, and then who oversees that and how is that democratic? And so, you know, there's a little bit of a, a, a recursive problem that I feel like is always kind of embedded in these, um, in these, in these uh, institutional design questions. Yeah, totally. No, and, and I, I think that this is a very real tension, but I completely agree with you that like 
uh, you have to contend. You have to contend with power, and it's where we started the the discussion. In a way that you know, if, if you frame our problem in, as the problem of domination, then of course you have to think about power. Um, so I think a couple things about this. One is that uh, I don't think we should expect any one participatory moment or 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 episode or engagement to like produce the answer, capital A, right? Because there isn't. A, an answer to a lot of these contested, like, value judgment questions. We disagree about stuff. And and there are disparities of power in, in any sort of space and and, uh, and and process. So so in some ways, the best we can do is to try to approximate as, as best as we can a sort of uh, fair and equal uh, 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 process uh, and then have that sort of play out over time, right? We might... Uh, so... You know, we might reach a judgment, you know, an approach today, and we might change our view about that tomorrow, and that's fine. You know, I don't I, like. I think that's what it means to live in a democracy. Um, but there are certain forms of uh, of power that that then that become uh, that become so concentrated and extreme that it's it's a threat to the democratic ideal itself. So, like, it's okay to disagree and to keep contesting for you know uh, a different way of doing things. That's that's what we sign up for, uh, but what's not okay, you know, I don't think, is to, um, you know, use one's uh, to use one's moment of power to uh, permanently, you know, disenfranchise right uh, other constituencies. Like that's that's power too, but that's that's sort of a raw power politics that is that is fundamentally disloyal to the idea of democracy. Um, and so, you know, when so you could say, okay. Uh, uh, coalition wins an election and then decides to engage in widespread voter suppression or gerrymandering. Is that democratic? Well, in a really kind of dumb literalist sense, yeah. But but in a like real deeper sense, of course not, because that like that is that's domination. That's not democracy. That's using a moment of political control to uh, permanently subjugate and and insulate from uh, from their views, you know, insulate yourself from the views of this of another constituency. Right. And so so I think, you know, that's you could both things can be true at the same time. Right. That we have to contend with power uh, and and power is ir- irreducible in our uh, and, and disagreement is irreducible. And there are certain types of power uh, that uh, and disagreement that go way past way past that into something that is actually hostile to the democratic project. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we could probably keep talking about this for a, for a long time. There's so many interesting issues and um, to, to to discuss, and your interventions on all of these have been super interesting. And and thanks for your great work at OIRA, great work at Demos. Um, it's been a really wonderful conversation. I appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much, Mike. This is a blast. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.